Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Robert A. Destro, Director of the Interdisciplinary Program in Law and Religion for the Columbus School of Law at Catholic University of America, giving a talk entitled, Rethinking the, quote, non-establishment, end quote, principle, text, structure, and the politics of power. This talk is part of the Truth, Conscience, and Religious Freedom Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. All right, well, what I'm going to talk about today is, uh, is power politics. And, uh, and so I'm going to start with, by reading a quote uh, from a justice whose opinion uh, in, in a later case uh, becomes very relevant to what we're talking about here. I'm going to quote then Attorney General Robert Jackson, who, uh, who wrote in 1941 as kind of a post-mortem of the fight that Roosevelt had over the Supreme Court. Uh, Roosevelt, or uh, Jackson's book uh, says, and I quote, constitutional lawsuits are the stuff of power politics in America. The court may be, and usually is, above party politics and personal politics, but the politics of power is a most important and delicate function, and adjudication of litigation is its technique, end quote. Now, where does this take us? Well, what I'd like you to think about, we've heard a lot in the, in the, prior, uh, in the prior discussions about uh, the history, about the culture. Uh, what I'd like you to think about a little bit is the culture of the Supreme Court itself. Because they're the ones who give us these rules that uh, we've been talking about today. So if we think about the cultural politics of the Supreme Court itself, there are two areas where kind of certain anomalies stick out like a sore thumb. One is religion, the other one's race. And, uh, and so if we look at the cultural politics of religion and race in the United States, since the Supreme Court decided Dred Scott, Dred Scott in 1856, which I, what I think you will find uh, is that the court's messages about religion and race can accurately be described, be described as, quote, a mess both hopelessly confused and deeply contradictory, unquote. Okay, now the second point is that the court's messages about um, race and religion have created a very sustained and deeply entrenched political culture that has made it possible for our government to miss really important issues, like the gathering storm in the Middle East, uh, South Africa and Asia prior to 9-11. And in my view, that situation has not improved. We seem to be either unwilling or unable to take a hard look at the ways in which our own cultural presuppositions about the role of religion and ethnicity may affect our domestic, foreign development, and defense policies. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, the <clears throat> let me start, and the reason I decided to start with the Establishment Clause is I think this is really where we have to start uh, if we're going to start with this discussion, we have to start at the beginning to identify the roots of where the problem are. So what I'd like you to think about is the first words of the First Amendment. 
Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. All right, now, let's bracket the phrase an establishment of religion for a minute. Now, there's two ways in which you can understand what an establishment of religion is. The first one is that it's the public expression or physical manifestation of individual or associational religious commitments, including such things as individual or communal prayer, worship, or placement of sacred symbols. It can also mean the formation and maintenance of religious associations, such as churches, synagogues, mosques, or religious schools. And it can also mean attempts by religiously motivated individuals or associations to shape the public policy or the civic culture. Because that's what you say, what's an establishment of religion? It's, it's, it's a group of people, kind of like a business establishment. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it, and the one that I'm going to argue for today, is that an establishment of religion is a group. That is, a faction or group of factions that seek to use the power of the state to control access to public space and programs, especially the major culture-forming and, and political institutions of the country. Okay, now in that regard, an establishment of religion is what we would refer kind of to generically as the establishment. Okay, now, the case law since Everson versus Board of Education in 1947 has adopted that first definition. An establishment of religion is the public expression or physical manifestation of individual or religious, uh, associational religious commitments. I quote, uh, the opinion, the establishment, of, the establishment of religion clause of the First Amendment means at least this. Neither a state nor the federal government can pass laws which aid one religion, aid all religions, or prefer one religion over another. Neither can force a religion, neither can it force nor enforce, uh, influence a person to go to or remain away from church against his will, or force him to profess a belief or disbelief in any religion. No person can be punished for entertaining or professing religious beliefs for church attendance or non-attendance. Okay, that's the classic view. Now, what I want to argue here is that the alternative formulation, that an establishment of religion is a group or a faction whose point of view regarding religion or lack thereof is by operation of law or political convention politically correct. By the same token, a, what we call in civil rights law a structure of racism is, by the same reason, a faction whose points of view regarding the proper uses of race in polite society are, by operation of law or political convention, politically correct. And then, by definition, anybody who disagrees is politically incorrect. Now, what I would suggest is that most discussions about the First Amendment started in the wrong place. I suggest that most discussions of the First Amendment start in the middle. And what they do is they ignore the Constitution itself in a quest to discern the original intent of the First Amendment. Now, it seems to me, reading the history and the text and the structure, that's why the title of the 
of the, uh, of the talk is what it is, is you need to go back and look at what problem they were trying to solve, right? And if we look at the Constitution itself, and we focus on the idea of what does it mean to be politically correct, okay? What, what, what that means is if you're politically correct, you're accepted. You're accepted in the in-group. If you're politically incorrect, by definition, you're in the out-group. Okay, now how did we deal with that in the original text of the Constitution? You know, and this is very, very hard sometimes to get across to students, but you have to look at what's not there. Okay, so if we look at the qualifications clauses for members of Congress in Article I, members and senators, for the President in Article II, in the Oath and Test Clauses of Article VI, and the Citizenship Clause of the 14th Amendment, what you find is that religion is not there. Okay, so religion is, is left out as a qualification to be in the in or ruling group. Read together, these and the other equality guarantees in the Constitution were designed to ensure that all American citizens especially are equally eligible to participate in the processes and programs of their government. It's therefore the duty of those who wield legislative, executive, and judicial powers of the United States to take citizens as they find them religious and cultural differences notwithstanding. Okay, now that is a lot to kind of get your head around. But I want you to think about that the Constitution written the way it was, was unacceptable to the Anti-Federalists, unless it were amended to include a Bill of Rights. And why was it that they were opposed to the Constitution the way it was written? And the short answer is they correctly anticipated Chief Justice John Marshall's famous opinion in McCullough versus Maryland, where he basically said, let the end be legitimate, let the end be plainly adapted to the means, you know, and anything within the scope of the Constitution and not forbidden is constitutional. So if you think carefully, it would be really easy without the First Amendment to have a Church of the United States. You could have a Bank of the United States, because that's useful for commerce. Well, a Church of the United States would have been equally useful for the moral, you know, the moral education of the people. And that is precisely what they didn't want. They did not want a political faction grabbing control of the culture-forming institutions of our country. Now, the problem is that that's what, exactly what has happened. Today, there's no official ruling class that governs religious matters in the United States, but we do enforce a series of legal and cultural norms that defines the way in which people in polite society think and speak about controversial topics like religion and race. Also, that's also becoming true in the last few days with the demise of one of the in inventors of Mozilla. We've just seen that. Part and parcel of what sociologists have called the American civil religion, 
Those norms seek to encourage social cohesiveness by fostering conformity and political safe thinking. Now, in a very helpful turn of phrase, John Murray Cudahy, who was uh, uh, John Courtney Murray's nephew, I believe, referred to these norms uh, the, as the core doctrine of a religion of civility. And he says, quote, under the cover of its prim title, it is in its rights and practices activist, aggrandizing, subversive, intrusive, and incivil, unquote. And he spoke extensively of the experience of former President Jimmy Carter's encounter with the civil religion that Americans more and more practice whatever they profess. I mean, and, and the civil religion types could not countenance Jimmy Carter's born-again evangelicalism. If you go back and look at the commentary, they found that very hard. And what Cudahy observes, and I think this is a, uh, this is a, a very interesting Quote, he says, this complex code of rights instructs us in the ways of being religiously inoffensive, of giving no offense, of being religiously sensitive to religious differences, to be complexly aware of our religious appearance to others is to practice the religion of civility. Thus, civil religion is the social choreography of tolerance. It dances out an attitude. Now, why is that important here? Well, if you look at the range of cases that the Supreme Court has decided since Dred Scott, and you read them as a whole, what you find is, uh, is that the court's due process cases, substantive due process cases, since Dred Scott versus Sanford, are best understood as efforts by the court, or I should say, by a controlling faction, to manage diversity and social change by ensuring that the nation's most important culture-forming institutions are controlled by factions whose attitudes are at least consistent with the general sentiment of the community. If not with the views of what Justice O'Connor called in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, quote, the thoughtful part of the nation. The court's Establishment Clause cases fit squarely into this mold and provide at least prima facie evidence of a pattern and practice of judicial deference to the political power of factions whose views on race and religion are consistent with the court's own views of the enlightened sentiment of mankind. Okay, and that phrase, the enlightened sentiment of mankind, comes right out of a case from the late, uh, from the late or the early 1890s where the United States government took apart the Latter-day Saints Church and the fight over polygamy. Now, the factional influence fighting within the court in these cases also shows, that, shows prima facie evidence that the justices have been willing over the years for raison d'etat to subordinate the rights and duties of the litigants before them to the interests of factions whose interests are at odds with the aggrieved parties who filed the case. The available evidence supports a charge that the court has been and remains willing as an institution to sacrifice liberty, political equality, and pluralism 
whatever the acceptance of a litigant's arguments might threaten loss of control of important culture-forming institutions like the public schools. Based on outcomes and reasoning patterns, and again I'm quoting Justice O'Connor, an objective observer of the court's decision could rationally conclude that the court's view of its own power to manage diversity is far broader than John Marshall's claim in Marbury versus Madison, that it's emphatically the power and province of the judiciary to say what the law is. In case after case, the court has claimed the power to strike, quote, sensible balances between and among the interests of competing factions that are involved in these cases as litigants, as amici curiae, or as political factions seeking to defend hard-won political victories. Now, I'm going to digress for a moment and say, if you want to see that in action, get the courts, the transcript of the oral argument in Hobby Lobby. Because you will see Justice Kagan wistfully talking about how they wish she wished they could go back to pre-employment division versus Smith so that they could strike, quote, sensible balances. It's right there, and you could, you could, you could hear it in her tone. I was uh, privileged to be in the courtroom. You can't necessarily see it on the, the bare transcript, but if you get the oral, uh, oral argument uh, tape, you'll see it. Now, if we assume, for purposes of the discussion today, that an establishment is a group of people, having political power to impose its views about the proper relationship of religion and religious believers to the political structure, our analysis of the establishment would be very different. We would not need to concern ourselves about three-pronged tests. We wouldn't need to use tape measures to establish the distance between Santa Claus, the creche, and the plastic reindeer. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't care about the reaction of hypothetical you know, objective observers who high drive and then hike out to the Mojave Desert so they can be insulted by a cross. You know, or we wouldn't, uh, you know, we, we just wouldn't care about that. Okay, why not? Well, because we would focus on the intended behaviors of the people who are making the rules, just like we do in race cases. All right. We would also be intensely interested in learning about the outcomes of the rules that they have promulgated or found. And we want to know whether or not the rule actually works in practice to promote equality of opportunity. Does it really take every citizen or every person as we find them? And the answer is no. But once we take this conceptual step, there is no going back. The confusion disappears, but new conceptual issues come up. And the first and most important is, what about the court's obligation to what have always been called discrete and insular minorities? I mean, that has been since 1937, you know, when the court decided United States versus Caroline Products Company, you know, it has always seen itself as the special protector of minorities. Now, I'll tell you, you don't question politically correct assumptions like that one and get away with it. Okay, we have seen that in the marriage cases. Uh, we've seen it in a lot of other places. It says, but 
the, uh, the important part is that in the end, there are just certain questions you're not allowed to ask. But when we put the, these assumptions on the table and view them through the lens of factional power politics, that famous footnote about taking care of discrete and insular minorities looks a lot more like a power grab than it does you know, a, a reasonable uh, way of doing things. So in order to really see this, what we have to do is look at, as John Noonan put it, we have to immerse ourselves in the history. So let's talk about Everson versus Board of Education. Everson versus Board of Education is a classic example of what you would call the politics of diversity management. You know, and the devil's always in the detail. So if we look at the, most of our understanding of the First Amendment in general, and of the civil rights laws in particular, you know, it's, it's said to be framed by our concern for those who dissent, by word or deed from the zeitgeist or conventional wisdom of the community. Because they are dissenters, those who refuse to accept traditional moral, social, or cultural norms have come to rely on the courts as the primary place where you get your redress of grievances. So when, whether the issue is flag burning, profanity, pornography, the in-your-face evangelical me me message of the itinerant missionary, whatever, the court sees itself as the protector of minorities. And that's good. That's what we want them to do. But the court's jurisprudence of the religion clause is of a different character altogether. Though its free exercise clause cases have long insisted that public officials owe at least the same duty to accommodate religiously motivated individuals and institutions as they owe to others, its establishment clause cases start from a very different premise that the rights of religious dissenters are best protected by an activist court that strives to preserve the secular character of public spaces, programs, and benefits by excluding anything or anyone with religiously identifiable character. Now, a page of this history is indeed worth, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, a volume of logic. Before, before 1947, the Supreme Court had addressed the meaning of the ban on laws respecting an establishment of religion on only two occasions. In both cases, the court refused to exclude religiously identifiable institutions from participating in public programs or public benefit, uh, public programs or public benefits. So, if the Bill of Rights is about the protection of minorities, the court's first post-1937 into the Establishment Clause should have been an easy one. Catholics were unquestionably a minority in the United States in 1947, and there was a long and well-documented history of discrimination against Catholics, both generally and in the public schools. From the time of the Civil War onwards, Catholics in many parts of the Northeast uh, and Midwest opened a campaign to eliminate the Protestant tinge a Bible reading in the public schools and to secure for their own schools a share of the funds that the states were providing education. The response to this campaign was a classic example of factional power politics. 
Control of the schools was a galvanizing issue from 1876 onwards with the adoption of the Blaine Amendments. Uh, and the culture war continued from 1876 through to 1920 when the court decided Pierce versus the Society of Sisters because the Ku Klux Klan pushed through a law in Oregon to shut down all the, problem, the schools. And if you want some very, very interesting reading, go read the briefs of the state of Oregon. And it will, it will, uh, it will confirm everything you've heard before, you know, that Catholics are a danger and their church is a danger and they worship a foreign prince and all those things that we've had to put up with for all these years. Now, let's look, so you get, you get to the, uh, basically to the post-World War I period with Pierce, and then you have a couple of smattering of little cases involving textbooks, but not, nothing much to write home about. But then you get to World War II, and now Catholics have reached what sociologists call a critical mass. You know, where they can talk to each other, they start, to, uh, they start to, to operate kind of as a group. And they do that in, here in Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, places where there are a lot of Catholic immigrants. And the soldiers had just come back from World War II, and they took very seriously the idea that all men were created equal. So, let's look at the statute briefly that was involved in Everson. It says, whenever in any district there, is a there are children living remote from any schoolhouse, the Board of Education of the district may make rules and contracts for the transportation of such children to and from school, including the transportation of school children to and from schools other than a public school, except such school as is operated for profit in whole or part. Now, as originally drafted, the New York, New Jersey law only applied to schoolhouses operated by the public schools. But a 1941 amendment broadened its coverage to include any schoolhouse and any child attending nonprofit private schools. Because Ewing Township, which is a suburb of Trenton, had no high school at the time, it was inevitable that every single child in the district would be commuting into Trenton to attend high school. The only question was going to be, who pays the bill. So in 1942, the Ewing Township trustees adopted the following resolution. The Transportation Committee recommended the transportation of pupils of Ewing to the Trenton High and Pennington High and Trenton Catholic schools by way of public carriers in recent years. And on motion of Mr. Ryan and Mr. French, the same was adopted. So the record in Everson doesn't tell us much about the factional politics that led up to the adoption of that law, but it certainly does tell us a lot about the factions that opposed it. Even though Trenton High was a public school and Pennington High was affiliated with the Methodist Episcopal Church, Mr. Everson told the Supreme Court, and I quote, all of the said schools are Roman Catholic parochial schools in the city of Trenton. A religion is taught as a part of the curricula in each of the said schools. A priest of the Catholic Church is the superintendent of the said schools. Okay, now remember, in Trenton they read the Bible without comment. They said the Lord's Prayer. And Pennington High School was a Methodist school. 
which I'm, you know, I don't, I haven't gone back to see their curriculum guides, but I would guess that Christianity played more than a subtle role in that correct curriculum as well. So he says, stripped to its essentials, Mr. Everson's claim was that the Establishment Clause makes parents and children ineligible to participate in publicly funded educational programs unless they submit to state control of their entire educational experience, the curriculum, the perspective, and the environment. This was so, he argued, quote, because the courts of this country have been unanimous in prohibiting the use of public funds to pay directly or indirectly the tuition and fees of pupils in private or sectarian schools. I want, you to think, I want you to hold that thought for a minute and think about the Blaine Amendments. There are 37 Blaine Amendments. Okay, so if you wonder why Mr. Uh, Ever, where Mr. Everson, Everson got his figures, that's where he got it from. And so what you see is in Everson, there is no Blaine Amendment. I mean, there's no federal Blaine Amendment, but that's what he wanted. He wanted to change through, Supreme, through the politics of litigation, he wanted to change the rules. So Mr. Everson lost that battle, but it's, arguably, it's arguable that he won the war, at least for the time being. The principle he espoused, that public financial support necessarily requires that the government control all the content is actually the rule we have today. Now, it would take 50 years from Everson for even a chink in that armor to be breached. Now, I'm gonna skip forward a little bit and give you a couple of examples of, uh, of why, this, uh, why this is important today. Now, a few years ago, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decided a case called Nampa Classical Academy versus Gosling. And in that case, the state of Idaho had adopted a series of curriculum content standards for grades six to nine that require, among other things, that students in world history and civilization be able to explain the rise of human civilization and, among other things, identify the role of religion in the development of human civilizations. It also said that they should be able to explain the relationship with religion and people's understanding of the natural world, how religion shaped the development of Western civilization, how religion influenced the social behavior and created social order, and describe why religious, different religious beliefs were a source of conflict. In the 12th grade, by the end of world history and civilization, the student should be able to explain the common reasons and consequences for the breakdown of order among nation states, such as conflicts about natural interest, ethnicity, and religion. Okay? So, the, the Nampa Classical Academy is a charter school. It's a nonprofit charter school incorporated under the laws of the state of Idaho. Its curriculum was structured as a classical liberal arts format, and the teachers, who were from a variety of different faith traditions, decided that they were going to opt for using primary source documents, the Bible, the Quran, the Book of Norman, etc. 
They use the classics of Greek and, Greek and North mythology, and, uh, and uh, what else? And the Hadith, and so I believe some of the, uh, some of the Eastern religions as well. The Idaho Board of Education approved its charter and they approved the curriculum. Shortly thereafter, the ACLU sued. It was offended. And the Ninth Circuit, the, the, the District Court and the Ninth Circuit said, the state of Idaho can revoke their charter, in fact, probably must re revoke their charter, because the use of sectarian books would allow religious religion into the curriculum of the public schools. Idaho public school teachers may not then assign readings from the Quran, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or any other primary text, even as literature. And Idaho public school children cannot learn, in school at least, from primary sources, how any religious tradition perceives an important question. Okay, now, I want you to hold that thought, and I want you to understand that the United States government today purchases Qurans in Pashto, Dari, and Urdu for use as teaching materials in Pakistani madrasas. It also pays for teacher training and capacity building programs that can permit curricular and pedagogical enhancement with strong emphasis on religious tolerance, human rights, conflict resolution, and critical thinking skills. Why? because we don't want kids to grow up to be Talibanis. Right? That's why. Now you say, well, what's wrong with this picture? You know, I could, I could multiply these examples. I won't do that here, but I wanted to ask you, what do these cases have in common? What they have in common is an assumption on the part of what I would call the establishment and the majority of justices and others to whom they refer as the thoughtful part of the nation, is that the, quote, the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, right? Except if it gets in our way, in which case you don't. Now, in a couple of the other cases, there is a, there's a currently a pending case in the Supreme Court now called the University of Texas versus Fisher, which is an affirmative action case. And, uh, and basically, you know, the, uh, in Fisher, the schools got the memo that there's a certain way to do affirmative action. In the Christian Legal Society case out in California, the Christian Legal Society was excluded from Hastings Law School because they would not allow, they, they wanted you to take a, a pledge that you would actually be Christian. Think of that. Now, I want you to think, by the way, and, I, and, and, and that is that the, that the Christian Legal Society case has a lot to do with Hobby Lobby. You know, what we're seeing is we're seeing kind of the, uh, the same thing uh, as, again, as Yogi said, this is deja vu all over again. Now, what are the real world implications of all of this? Now, the real world implications is that if an establishment of religion uses its access to or political or control of power to manipulate the rules to advance its agenda, we should be able to find some evidence in the case law that that's what's happening. 
And just as in one of the cases pending this term, we would attempt to show that the majority has used its power to create, quote, a comparative structural burden that makes it difficult, if not impossible, for factions who don't share the majority's view to accomplish their goals through traditional political channels. So I've already given you two examples. The Blaine Amendments change the rules. Ever since the case law since Everson changed the rules. And that was for the states. When the federal government got involved in aid to, public, to, to private education in the 60s, the court changed the rules again and gave taxpayers standing where they never had it before, precisely so that they could challenge federal aid to parochial education. And if you read the dissenting opinion of Justice Kagan in the Arizona uh, tuition school tuition organization, Christian school tuition organization versus Win case, you will see her lamenting that there's now, there may not be a road to go in there and take away, for the court to take away those hard-earned political victories that people fought so hard for. Does that argument strike you as familiar? That's precisely the argument they made in the gay marriage cases. You have changed the rules, right? But I will guarantee you, if you turn around and you make these arguments in a religion case, you will lose. Okay, so what I'm suggesting to you, and I think that, uh, I think it came out very clearly in the panel discussion last night, is that it's nasty out there, you know, but we need to understand that this is a political battle. This is a political battle and we have to understand, and I thought that uh, the Dr. Munoz's uh, talk about why was it that Jefferson felt that his fight over the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty was so important. I'd love to know a little bit more about the political dynamics of that dog and cat fight. You know, but we see them going on right now. Now, I'll give you a classic example, and then I will uh, give you time to ask questions. The first example is Hobby Lobby. Okay, why is that? Because the government is basically trying to change the rules. Why? Well, if I get together with a group of people and form a corporation, and I call it the New York Times. Hey, I have a First Amendment right, right? If I get together and form a corporation called the ACLU, I have a First Amendment right. In fact, I not only have a First Amendment right to free speech, I have a right to petition for redress of grievances by going to the courts. But if I form a group called the Catholic Church or the Little Sisters of the Poor and incorporate it, guess what? I don't. Now why is that? And again, it comes back, and it's a much longer discussion than we have time for today, to the court's development of substantive due process since 1937. You'll see exactly the same pattern. I'm not going to develop it here in race cases. When is it okay to use race? When the court thinks so. 
You know, it's considered very politically incorrect for Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts to say, the only way to get over using race is to stop using race. That's, that's not something you're supposed to do. Now, let me close with a quote. There is a theory in international affairs that was quoted uh, that my friend and colleague, Dr. Tom Farr, was quoted earlier this morning, that religion really has no place in foreign affairs. Now, we better hope it doesn't, because the kids at Nampa Classical Academy didn't learn anything because of the Ninth Circuit. They're not allowed to know how Muslims think, right? I'm going to quote a very senior official at the Pentagon who says, I, I don't really like this idea of religion and foreign affairs. He says, you know, we have separation of church and state in this country. We're not allowed to talk to Ayatollahs, unquote. Now, of course, my reaction to that was, last time I checked, you need the signature of one on that nuclear agreement, don't you? You know, if you can't talk to them, as Acts 2 suggests, in their own language, then you will fail. And so what we have here is what I'm suggesting to you is that as we try and reconceptualize, we need to reconceptualize the Establishment Clause. It is not a privilege, it's not a heckler's veto. That's what it's turned into. But you gotta stop Okay, and if we kind of supinely pay attention, as the Wizard of Oz tells us, don't look at that guy behind the curtain, just pay attention to the great and powerful, you know, then you know, we, get, we deserve what we get. You know, but the fact of the matter is that the Christian communities in this country, and I use the word Christian, because now it has finally dawned on our evangelical brothers and sisters that they're in precisely the same boat as we were in the 1940s. You know, and it is hard to realize that you have lost control of social institutions. You know, but the Establishment Clause case law, as the race case law shows you, is that it's all about cultural control. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.